Welcome to the New Life Philly Podcast. Every week, we share fresh insights as we explore the inexhaustible depths of the Word of God. We pray that you will be encouraged and challenged today as we continue in our study. Let's join in now. So we'll be doing that. So today is a heavy subject. We're coming out of Micah chapter 6. But before we get into the scripture, I want to read for you from the NIV application commentary on the intro to Micah. I seldom read something this long, but I just want to read the introduction they have to Micah's prophecy. Here it is. People in every age suffer injustices at the hands of the strong. In every neighborhood and business, there are strong and arrogant individuals who feel they deserve to spend more money to have greater political clout than anyone else. Some companies want an exclusive monopoly on their product so they can make a larger profit. Some bosses want to control, want control over the social behavior of others. And some commercial farms want to farm more land and control the market on a product. In order to make their dreams come true, such people often end up forcibly imposing their wills on the lives of others. He says, this process usually involves treating some people in an unjust way. Right and wrong are forgotten so that the selfish goals of the powerful can be achieved more quickly. Ethics are ignored and decisions are not made on the basis of the best interest of all involved. No matter what the reason or the situation, the Bible consistently pictures God as the one who hates injustice and fights for justice. I'm going to read that sentence again. No matter what the reason, the Bible consistently pictures God as the one who hates injustice and fights for justice. He goes on to say, in every age, God's people need to encourage and support civic, military, social, religious, political, and family leaders who are bold enough to lead them in just ways that please God. Israel needed this kind of capable leadership in the time of Micah, and the church needs people in all walks of life to stand up and challenge others to let principles of justice influence all their relationships. He says, since the Creator's dealings with His created world are based on people's loving God and their neighbors, respectively. There is no other way to please God. There is no other way to please God. Let's stand up together. I want to read with you Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And we'll do this... um, having you read every other verse, if you can move it on to the verses. Um, Micah 6, 1 through 8, so I'll read the first verse. You read the ones in bold, and we'll go from there. We'll read the final verse, verse 8, together. So let's read from the Word of God. Listen, 
to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains. The Lord's My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And let's read verse 8 together. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. My title today is The Only Way to Please God. The Only Way to Please God. Let me pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word comforts us. Your word encourages us. Your word sometimes rebukes us. Your word moves us toward you. And I pray that by your word and through the work of your spirit, you will do your work in your people today. Have your way and glorify your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. You may be seated. Praise the Lord. The only way... To please God, the only way to please God. Before I get into these few verses in Micah, I just want to set the background for the prophet Micah and for the book that is before us. Micah wrote in the 8th century BC. He was a contemporary of Isaiah and of Amos. He wrote during a time when Israel was prospering like never before. They were prospering militarily. They were prospering economically. They were prospering in every way. But as is often the case, in times of prosperity, we often also see oppression of the poor and the helpless. That's exactly what 
we saw in Israel. That's exactly what the prophets saw and what they spoke to as they looked at injustice and oppression happening not just in the world, but among the people of God. God wasn't pleased and the the prophets called it out. As a matter of fact, if you were to look uh, in in, in archaeology, In the 10th century B.C., if you look at the housing stock in Judah and Israel, you would see that the houses were fairly consistent. They were pretty much the same wherever you went. You could see a house and that's what it looked like in the 10th century. But in this time of great prosperity... In the 8th century, you began to see larger and larger houses in some places, and then you saw uh, smaller houses, more flimsy houses, put together closer in other places. What does that remind y'all of? (laughs) You you see, when, when prosperity came, oppression came, and opportunity came for some to become more wealthy, for a greater wealth gap to exist than had ever existed before. The prophets are seeing what's going on beneath the facade of this great prosperity. There's terrible oppression of the poor. And listen, brothers and sisters, that is the story of the world that we live in. It is an American story. It is a world story. It is through different cultures and through time. Micah 2 and verse 1, 1 and 2 say this. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. Look at that. They carry out an evil plan. Why? Because they have the power to do it. Verse 2, they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. This is what's going on in Israel in this day, in Judah in this day. This is very much the story of our own land as well. Amen? We live on stolen property, all of us, if we live in the United States of America and we're not native to this land. We live on stolen property. Uh, the prophets weren't happy with this. Amos puts it this way in Amos 2.7. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and they deny justice to the oppressed. So not only is there a trampling on the rights of the poor, but there is a rigged justice system that is at work to make sure that they don't have recourse to for their own plea. It will be stopped. The, the, the justice system is unjust. It's run by money and bribes more than what is right. This is the cry of the prophets. This is the cry of Micah in this day. And so as we go into uh, the verses that we're going to look at today, there is in these verses the laying out of a covenant lawsuit by God, by Yahweh, against his own people. 
There's a covenant lawsuit being laid out. We see this in other prophets as well. But in Micah, Yahweh is laying out a lawsuit against his people. Look at verse 2. He says, they trample. He says, hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. God himself is laying out a lawsuit against his people. What's the first thing you have to do when, 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 when you're going to have a trial and go to a case? You need to get your jury together. Amen. And so he gets his jury together. He says, here, O mountains. <laughs> In other places, uh, they call out to the heavens and the earth as witnesses. He says, here, old mountains, you've been here all along. You've seen everything that's happened. Mountains, you be my jury. And he says, the Lord has a case against his people. We used to sing a song about Jesus being a lawyer in the courtroom. Amen. Now, I know we have at least one lawyer in the house today. We got Brother Dexter. He can do his thing in the courtroom. I don't know if anyone else is in law or studying for law, but uh, we love the fact that Jesus is our lawyer. He is our defender. He stands against every accusation of the enemy. He stands in our place and holds back the enemy and he's never lost a case. We love that. But now (laughs) he's the prosecutor. Now, Yahweh comes as the prosecuting attorney. We might just say, oh, snap, we're in trouble. (laughs) Yahweh's opening a lawsuit against his own people. Let's look at this next part. The next part of the case is the opening statement. I said opening arguments, but the opening statement is done. And, And he is an expert lawyer. He's going to remind the people of what he has done. Verse two says, or verse three, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. Like a good lawyer, Yahweh's opening statement anticipates the objections of the people and undermines them before they can even ask. He says, I know what you're thinking. I know you think you have some grounds to accuse me. I know what's going on in your mind. So before you even get there, I'm going to answer your objection. Brothers and sisters, this is where we get in trouble with God sometimes as well. We have our accusations against God because he did not come through the way he promised to come through. Has anyone ever been there? Am I alone in that? I'm mad at you, God. I'm angry with you, God, because this should not have happened. Don't you know how we prayed, how we fasted, how we sought you, and yet you still allow this. God, I have a problem with you. 
And there is that good place that the scripture leaves us for lament and for pouring out our pain and our anguish and even our accusation before God. But God forbid we should stay in that place. We don't stay there. We work through that. And God is going to say to his people, realize and recognize you have no case against me. That's what the good lawyer does, even in his opening statement. Look at what he does. There's evidence that he lays out in verses four and five that he has indeed been faithful to them. Look at what he says in verses four and five. First of all, there's four ways that he lays out this, this argument. He says, first of all, I brought you up out of Egypt. In other words, I redeemed you from slavery. Where were you, people of God? You were toiling in bitter anguish, in slavery. I brought you out by my good right hand. I redeemed you. That means paid for you. I brought you out of slavery. Secondly, look at what he says in this next part of verse four. He says, I sent Moses to lead you. Also, Aaron and Miriam. In other words, he says, I gave you some great leaders. I put some people before you. I gave you leaders that could bring you out. I gave you Moses. We've been going through Mark's gospel and we see all these comparisons between Jesus and Moses. And yes, Jesus is the greater than Moses. But in the Old Testament, Moses is as good as it gets for a prophet of God. He's a great prophet. He's a great leader. He's a flawed man, but he's a great leader that God gives him. But he says, not only did I give you Moses as the great prophet and leader, but I gave you Aaron, who is the priest, the one who intercedes between God and man. When you're messing up, I put a leader in there that's going to cry out to me on your behalf. Not only did I give you Aaron and Moses, but I gave you Miriam, a prophetess, a leader, a, a worshiper of God, leading God's people in worship and adoration of the great God. I gave you great leaders. Not only that, he goes on in verse five. My people remember when Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. He's talking about a situation where the king of Moab is coming against the people of God and asking a prophet of God to curse God's people. And God is reminding them, I didn't let it happen. I stopped that prophet in his tracks, even if I had to come out of the mouth of a donkey and speak through a donkey and stop the mouth of the prophet. I'll do whatever I need to do for my people. I love you. I cared for you. They tried to curse you, but I wouldn't let it happen. Blessing comes instead of cursing. Then he says in the last part of verse five. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. This is a shorthand 
for the whole journey of Israel in the wilderness and into the promised land. But in particular, it's the last part of that journey. Shittim is on the eastern side, on the western side of the Jordan River. Gilgal is on the eastern side. It's in the promised land proper. And he says, you were in Shittim, in that place, Moab came against you, the Midianites came against you, and I defeated them there. In that place, on that journey, I stopped up the Jordan River, just like I had stopped up the Red Sea, and the people walked through on dry land. I brought you to the precipice of the great citadel of Jericho, that, that city that was impenetrable, that city with high walls, that city that no no one had a chance against. And by the way, I brought down those walls. God is saying, remember what I've done for you. I took you out of slavery. I gave you great leaders. I, I, I gave you uh, a victory over enemies. And I brought you into this good land. In his opening statement, he shuts the mouths of those who would accuse him. So here's. What I wonder for us today, do we understand the good that God has done for us? Do we get that? Do we live in that? Do we soak in that? Or do we quickly forget because we're not getting our way right now? The scripture says that the one who was perfect and sinless, 2 Corinthians 5.21, who knew no sin, he became sin for you, for you, for you, for me. He became sin for us. Jesus, the only sinless one there ever was, became sin. He became a curse for us. And the Bible says, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know a little bit about your sin and your mess. You don't even know it all. Not even close. But you know some of it. But God looks at you in all of that and says, you are righteous. You are holy. You are my beloved. Oh, brothers and sisters, we got to get over some things and remember what God has done. Remember what he's done. So he, he lays out the opening statement. And the next thing he does is he lays out his case against his people. He lays out the case telling them not to settle for empty religion. Look at verse six. What shall come? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? What, what, what the people are asking is, how can we please God? How can we make sure that we're in good with God? How can we get the wrath of God off of our back? How can we be in a place where we don't have to worry about that anymore? What can we do? He lays out the case for them not to settle for empty religion. Look what he doesn't want. Verse six. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? What is he talking about? He's talking about God does not want your perfect offering. 
Three things that he's going to talk about that God doesn't want. He doesn't want your perfect offering, your calf a year old. This is a Levitical offering. It's one year old. It's spotless. It's blameless. It has no defects. God is saying, I don't want your perfect offering. That doesn't move me. That doesn't change me. Next, he says, Will the Lord be pleased, in verse 7, with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? In other words, not just my perfect offering or your perfect offering, but your biggest offering. Oh, I got a doozy of an offering. I I got all kind of stuff I'm going to offer God. And we can do that in a lot of different ways, can't we? With money, with time, with projects, with things that we do. We're going to offer this great offering. Surely God will see this. I fasted for 45 days. Didn't eat a thing. First of all, you lying. (laughs) Yes, you did. Yes, you did. (laughs) But, But we can do things, big things. And say, look what, look what we've done. And then thirdly, look at this one. This is a mess, y'all. Shall I offer in the middle of verse seven, my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Where do they get that from? They get that from all of the nations around them. Child sacrifice is a part of what the Canaanites would do. It was part of Canaanite religion. It was in Moab and in other countries as well. They would offer the firstborn. They would offer their own child. Shall I offer the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This is the radical offering. Now I'm going to give something that is so great, that is so precious, that is so extravagant. God, you've got to see it. God says, I want no part of it. The message that God is communicating as he lays out the case is that God's not looking for your religious observance. The primary concern, and all the prophets saw this, the primary concern for the 8th century B.C. Israelite religious person was the observance of the law through the offering system. So here's our question for us today. What is the primary concern for 21st century religious persons in Philadelphia? What is our great concern? In other words, what has taken the place? None of us have year-old calves to offer, or we're not going to have rivers of olive oil to pour out before God. What is the symbol for us that would match that symbol for the Israelites? And I think it's simply this. It is legalism in all its forms. Legalism in all its forms. I, we've talked about legalism and we come across it in the scriptures a lot, but, but, and I've given definitions before, but let me give you a new definition. Uh, legalism is this. It's Christians trying to be good for Jesus, but not concerned with being in love with Jesus. We're, we're, we're trying to be good or maybe not always be good, but at least appear to be good. <laughs> 
at least show on the outside that there's good. But we've, 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 we've taken that outward goodness away from the inner reality of a relationship that is in love, in passionate love with our Lord and Savior. Paint by numbers, Christian legalism is the modern equivalent of being stuck in the sacrificial system without working on your heart relationship with God. It's a performance mentality. I need to complete these duties. Focused on completion of duties, not on the condition of the actual relationship with God. Here's what I need us to see about legalism. It really is that bad. We, it's easy for us to talk about legalists. Amen. That's comfortable. That's them over there. What about your legalism? What about when we slip into this mindset of legalism? Legalism is self-love at its highest level. It's always self-love. It's consumed with self because it focuses all of its energy, all of its efforts on self-justification. How can I get in good with God? I'm going to do this so that even when we're doing good things, right things, I'm evangelizing, I'm tithing, I'm giving, I'm being generous, I'm not returning evil for evil. But when we're doing that in the trap and in the grip of legalism, it is not loving someone else. It is not loving God. It is attempting to manipulate God in order that we can get in good with him that's what it is here's the thing legalism is attempting by manipulative practices to unlock the love of God I'm going to unlock your love for me there's something I've got to do and I'm going to unlock the love of God for me here's here's the thing we don't have to unlock the love of God for us it's already been unlocked God's love was unlocked before the foundation of the world in his plan for salvation. Before sin even came in, he had a plan and he had love for you. It was unlocked. God's plan was unveiled in the Lord Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, this baby born to a teenage woman in a poor place. This man becomes the, the word of God for us and our savior. It's unveiled. And then the love of God is unleashed on us in Acts chapter two, as he pours out his Holy Spirit on the church. We are trying to manipulate God to do something that he has already done. Here's one thing I, I, I would just say. We've got to be so careful, y'all, because Christian legalists. And when any of us acts out and lives out of that, we're often more selfish than people that don't know God at all. Because we're consumed on doing something to manipulate the holy God. We can be more selfish than unbelievers. 
We can be way more self-righteous than unbelievers. And let's face it, we can be hard to get along with. We call ourselves doing the work of God. But when we're doing it from a legalistic spirit, you may even be witnessing what better thing can we do than to witness and tell someone about salvation in Jesus Christ. We're doing that from a legalistic spirit to earn something from God. In all likelihood, we are pushing someone farther away from God because they feel the spirit of that thing. They're not feeling the love of the Holy Spirit, the love of God, the the perfect work of Christ. They're feeling our striving to earn something and say, well, you know, they are they're now they've heard the word of God. They've heard the gospel. And so they're responsible now. That's not what happens when we're sharing the love of God out of sincere devotion to him. So let's look at this last part. The jury has been picked. The opening statement has been made. The case has been laid out. And now we come to the closing argument in verse 8. Most of us know this verse. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you to act justly? And to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I love the beginning of this verse. The prophet says, he's shown you this. I'm not giving you new information right now. This wasn't a a, a pop quiz that was a trick. This wasn't a test. That, that I didn't give you the information to get 100% on the test. Who He has shown you this. It's been plain in, in the word of God. It's been plain in Torah. It's been plain in the writings. It's been plain by the prophets. God has put it in front of your face over and over again. This stuff is plain. It's not new. It's not new stuff. I love that. And then he tells us, of this plain way that there are three things that he requires. Three things that God asks of his people in this closing argument. How do we walk out this calling? Number one, he says, act justly. Somebody say, act justly. He doesn't say love justice. He doesn't say study about justice, right? He says act justly. Act justly, and and that means living in right relationships, social relationships between people based on God's view of what is appropriate. So we live in community with the mindset of God, what are you calling me to do? What does love and justice look like in my context? In my world, the instructions that God gives 
over and over again through the prophets in scripture, protection of foreigners, protection of the poor, of slaves, of orphans and widows, of anyone who could easily be taken advantage of. We see that in Isaiah 1 and verse 17, and we see it all over the, pro the prophetical works is God is calling us to protect and care for the vulnerable who are around us. In other words, to act justly is to live out the great commandment in Leviticus 19 and verse 18, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus is going to tell us who our neighbor is. It's the one who's in need. It's the one who's in need. This should change the way we go to the grocery store. This should change the way we live in community. This should change our attitudes toward one another. We've got to understand, I'm going to close in just a, a few minutes, but this idea of justice that God is calling us to, because I think in our American context, we've missed it. We've missed it by a mile. I read something this past week that grieved my heart. Many of you know a man by the name of Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell is an apologist for the Christian faith. Now, for those of you who don't know, that doesn't mean he apologizes for being a Christian. An apologist is one who sets out uh, an argument to say this is why the Christian faith is valid. This is why you should come and experience the love of God in Christ through the Christian faith. And he has been at this work for decades. He wrote a best-selling book many years ago, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. But on September 18th, he was giving a speech for the American Association of Christian Counselors. And he was talking about inequality. And this is what he said. He said, I do not believe blacks, African-Americans, and many other minorities have equal opportunity. Amen. And then he says, why? Most of them grew up in families where there's not a big emphasis on education. Security, you can do anything you want. You can change the world. If you work hard, you will make it. So many African-Americans don't have those privileges like I was brought up with. He goes on to say, he added that the Bible only focuses on individual sin, not structural sin. When I read this, it grieved my heart. Now, there, there, there's actually some good news here in a second, but it grieved my heart because what he's saying is the problem of inequality in our country can be traced back to bad teaching in black families. They're not teaching their kids right. That's what he's saying. That's the core of his argument. They're not giving their children the right values. That's why there's inequality in our country. And then he underscores the fact that sin is always individual. There's never corporate sin. There's not structural sin. Now, the good news in this is he was called to the carpet on this and he has shown many fruits of repentance in the way he has uh, stepped back from it. He said uh, his comments about minority families, he said, does not reflect reality, A, to the men. 
And he also said, racism has kept equality from being achieved in our nation. Amen. I say amen to all of that. But here's the tragedy of his words. It reveals the attitude, not just of Josh McDowell at that time, but of many, many, many Christians in America particularly in white evangelicalism. It reveals what is thought about and how sin is only individual, not structural, and the problems that we have are because simply because individuals are making bad choices. Listen, we, we heard about in Jed's prayer the shooting at Broad and Chew this week. I think there were at least 23 bullets. I don't know... How many people were injured or killed in that shooting? It's, it's so common now. It's sad. And the young man who pulled that trigger is culpable for his decision. It was a wrong, ungodly, sinful decision to do that and put lives at risk and perhaps even take life. But that comes out of a context. Amen? that comes out of a place, that comes out of a system that breeds that kind of lack of care for life and lack of hope for his own life. That's the world that we're in. We've got to get this. The insistence that sin and injustice only exists on an individual level is a biblically indefensible position and leads to the ongoing gross inequalities that we live with in our nation and in our world. Christians must do better. Do justly, act justly. Secondly, love mercy. The Hebrew there word, the word there is chesed. It's a word that means the covenant loyalty, the covenant faithfulness of God towards us and reciprocating. He says, love chesed, love covenant faithfulness, love mercy toward others. One uh, person says it this way. This word is an act that preserves or promotes life. It is intervention on behalf of someone suffering misfortunes or distress. And then my old Hebrew and Old Testament professor, Bruce Waltke, adds on to that. He says that these acts of, of love and mercy are not delivered reluctantly, but with a spirit of generosity, of grace and loyalty, acts of justice motivated by a spirit of mercy guarantee the solidarity of the religious covenant. In other words, as the people of God are acting justly and loving mercy, it guarantees the ongoing faithfulness of the witness of God and Christ in our world. It's more than simply acting mercifully. It's habitually acting with loyalty to God's covenant so that we represent him rightly in the world. Mercy, chesed, is not simply your duty. It is your privilege as a believer in Christ. The last thing here is walk humbly with your God. That word humbly, it's the only time it's used. This particular word in the Hebrew Bible, only time it's used is right here. 
It means modestly, circumspectly, wisely, attentively. The humble person consistently puts God's will in the primary position and their own will in a secondary or tertiary position. A humble person embraces their brokenness and their limits and can be taught by others, can be directed by others, can be led by others even when they are in the position of power and authority. Oh God, we need those kinds of leaders now. We need humble leaders who have been given a mantle to lead, but who do so understanding they don't know it all. They don't see it all. They need help. They're limited. They can be wrong and they will repent when they're called on being wrong. We need those kind of leaders. We need those who will act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before God, not only leaders, but all of God's people. When we do that, we are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. Here's the end of the lawsuit. The end of the lawsuit here is not a sentence. He doesn't declare a sentence, but he gives an invitation. Oh, I love that. He gives an invitation and it is the invitation that God gives to live out this life of covenant fidelity before God. The only way to please God. Listen, nothing that I'm talking about and nothing that I'm going to put up on this board today is going to earn you something with God. We don't do these things to earn favor. We do these things because we are grateful for the love of God in Jesus Christ. And so there's this threefold way. Justice is the committed stance of the believer. God is on the side of the poor and he cares. And as those who are about God's justice, we stand with God in that. Secondly, mercy is the joyful privilege of the believer. It's not something we do out of duty or to earn favor. It's our privilege. God, you've blessed me so much. You've forgiven me so much. You've cared for me so much. I now have an opportunity to bless someone else. Thank you, Jesus. It's what believers filled with the Spirit do. And thirdly, humility is the permanent posture of the believer. Arrogant, haughty, unrepentant, have to have it my way leadership needs to be gone in our world but especially in the church we need humility in leadership this is what walking in the spirit is I'm going to do something different as we close today I'm going to ask everyone to stand we did this on Friday night but as I close, I want to do this. I want to read, I want us to read together 
a missional creed. It's based on the Nicene Creed. You can put that up on the board. But it has elements of God's mission for each of us in it. So I'd like us to read this together. And after that, I'll pray. Let's read. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, who sent his Son into the world and who now sends us out to reflect his heavenly kingdom on earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and became man. He entered our fallen world to proclaim good news to the poor, to heal the sick, and to set the oppressed free. For us and for our salvation, he suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose from the grave victorious. He ascended into heaven, where he is head of his body, the church. He will come again in glory and judgment, and he will reign forever in his glorious kingdom. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who leads us on mission to advance his kingdom in the earth. In this, we are called as Christ's holy and apostolic church to bear witness to his love, mercy, and justice, to proclaim his good news in word and deed, and to make disciples of all peoples. We do this as grateful ambassadors of Jesus Christ in his plan for the redemption of all creation to the praise and glory of his holy name. Let me pray. You can remain standing and then we're going to worship right after that. Father, I pray that you would do your work in each and every one of our hearts. Do your work in your church, God. Help us to be a people who are marked. We're marked by the love of God. We're marked by gratitude for the finished work of Christ. We're marked by the empowering, indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. And that marks us out as people who act justly who love mercy and who walk humbly before their God. Oh God, raise up a church that will live this out more fully than we've ever seen it. That we will be a witness right here in Philadelphia, right here in Albany, as a people who act justly, love mercy, walk humbly, and that people will see and be drawn to this God. This loving God who thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of man 
He emptied himself and died on that old rugged cross. And now he is exalted above all that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Lord, may we follow his example in his humiliation and be people who embrace our cross and point always to you. Glorify yourself among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you've been blessed today by the preaching of God's word. Join us every week for fresh insights on the New Life Philly podcast. If you would like to reach out to our church for more information, or if there's some way we can pray for you, please visit newlifephilly.net or email newlife at newlifephilly.net. May the Lord richly bless you this week.